As the kids are heading out, um, we actually come today to the close of our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. It's not by accident that the last words we hear from Jesus are about the end of time. If you haven't been with us all along, just to kind of, since you're not at the end of the Gospel of Mark we read this morning, we skipped ahead during Holy Week to the remaining chapters and covered that during Holy Week and uh, Easter Sunday, and then we backtracked to the parts that we had left, which were Jesus teaching first in the temple and now in chapter 13, commenting on the temple and then the things that are coming next. Biblical scholars have actually called this uh, 13th chapter of Mark the Little Apocalypse to be read alongside the Great Apocalypse, otherwise known as the Book of Revelation. You probably have heard that word apocalypse, but if you don't know exactly what it means, apocalypse means revelation or unveiling. And what's happening here in chapter 13 is Jesus is lifting the veil on what is coming in the immediate future for his original disciples, as well as what will happen with his final triumphant return. Jesus, you'll recall, is talking privately to four of his disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And the five of them are sitting on the Mount of Olives, just picture this scene, looking at the temple down below as Jesus surprisingly, shockingly, predicts its destruction. He goes on to describe for the disciples the end of the world literally as they know it. The end of the world as they know it. But his words were not only meant for them, his message is intended for us as well. And last week, John, just shout out to John, phenomenal job always filling the pulpit. Last week, John started us off in chapter 13, deftly, I think, introducing us to these important yet cryptic words by sharing that Jesus' message for us in these first 23 verses is to hold the line, to be firmly grounded in our faith in Christ even when the world seems to be falling apart around us. That Jesus gives us a general understanding and that, that analogy of a, how to take a picture and a photograph is very, very helpful. Not to get lost in specifics, but to understand the general sense of what's going to happen and in the midst of that, to hold the line, to be assured that God is on our side, that Jesus is with us, and that God wins in the end. And this morning, as one of our elders, Charity, comes forward, we're going to hear the remainder of chapter 13, and we're going to listen to the rest of what Jesus shares with us about what lies ahead. So open up to please to Mark chapter 13. If you're in your pew Bible, it's page 710. But in those days, following that distress... The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens." Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Keep your Bibles open. You're going to want to be looking back at them again and again as we talk through this. 
Verse 24, Jesus starts out by saying, but in those days following that distress, the first 23 verses that John covered last week, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And it goes on. At the start, on the, at, as we continue, on the one hand, Jesus tells us to get ready for what's coming. But as you heard Charisty continue to read what Jesus has for us, he goes on to say, no one knows about that day or hour. So on the one hand, Jesus tells us to get ready for what's coming, but do you catch that? On the other hand, Jesus says about that day or hour, he cautions us, no one, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, know when the clock will stop ticking and time will be up. Get ready, but you're never going to know when it's coming. In other words, Jesus, in my, my understanding, is telling us to expect the unexpected. Expect the unexpected. How do we hear that? How do we hear a, a word like that? Expect the unexpected. In my, in my uh, experience, we tend to hear Jesus' words here, expect the un- unexpected, in one of two extremes. Some people here expect the unexpected, and that means for them that in order to be prepared for what lies ahead, we have to read the signs of the times in order to figure out the date when Jesus is coming back. And as John talked about briefly last week, it's that kind of thinking, that extreme, that creates excessive, in my view, an unhealthy interest in the end times. Church history is replete with end times prognosticators. Some people get hardcore. I mean, if you're not familiar with this, some people get hardcore creating almanacs and timelines to chart the convergence of apocalyptic scriptures and historical events. Others may not be so extreme, but they still get sucked in to the speculation of fictional accounts, daily blogs, weekly podcasts, or the latest book about the end of the world. And so much so, again, so much so we can get sucked into this that the focal point of our faith and our witness becomes the end times rather than Jesus. And yet, if you were listening, Jesus, for this extreme of sort of, well, to be prepared, we've got to figure out when Jesus is coming back, Jesus goes out of his way explicitly to put the kibosh on determining the exact date or circumstance of his return with any certainty. And if the angels don't know, what would make any of us think that we could know? To, 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 to live in this extreme, I think, is to seek or to claim a degree of control that only the Lord God has. If you read carefully, even Jesus submits to the Father on this one. Not even the Son knows, only the Father. To claim to know, to even become overly fixated on wanting to know, what it does, why it's problematic, is it causes us to force highly symbolic biblical language to fit into our present circumstances. And we often do that at the expense of our witness to the gospel. The truth that we do have about Jesus, of which there's no no contest, no argument, the truth that we do have about Jesus gets overshadowed by speculation about who is the Antichrist. The good news we have been given, the good news that there's no debate about that we have been given to share gets lost in the fire and the brimstone. And frankly, these days, what's become a caricature of the end is near. That's one extreme. To expect the unexpected, we have to be prepared by figuring out when Jesus is going to return. But the other extreme, many people hear Jesus' theme of expect the unexpected, they hear it through the lens of the filter of Murphy's Law, you know? They hear expect the unexpected to mean, well, if anything can go wrong, it will. Don't, Don't be surprised that everything won't go according to plan. In fact, you ought to anticipate the worst happening. It's this belief This extreme that drives many of us to take a very cynical or apathetic view towards life. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Bad stuff happens. Deal with it. Spend enough time immersed in this extreme and this kind of thinking, and we can easily become self-centered in regards to the world around us. You know what? Ignorance is bliss. It's not my problem. Who cares about yesterday? Who knows if I have tomorrow? It's all about having a good time living for me today. Back in Jesus' day, the expression went this way, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And if you apply this extreme, this mentality of how we live out our faith, our attitude can become like this. Well, since we don't know when Jesus will return, but we do know we're saved, 
life in the here and now doesn't matter all that much. We can be cynical, even out of our faith. Well, you know, the world, the world it's going to hell in a handbasket. It's all going to burn anyway. Or we can become aloof. We come to church to think about God for an hour or so. But by the time we're riding home, we're almost immediately consumed with other things. You know, maybe that God shot lasts through Sunday dinner, but come Monday, Jesus recedes from our view and life goes on before without God. We, we fool ourselves into thinking that God's grace extended to us through Jesus comes without any expectations. When we get a moment, you know, when it's convenient, when it fits into our schedule, we'll give Jesus a nod of approval, say thanks. But in the meantime... While we're waiting, we can just do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. You know, Jesus is just sort of hanging around in the background. He's available at our beck and call if you've got a prayer request, you know. But he isn't looking to interfere in our otherwise busy schedules. I like to call this the Hakuna Matata Christianity. You know, when Jesus comes back, if he comes back, if it's anything like he describes here, then Jesus will command our full attention. But for now, it's no worries. Grace abounds. Salvation is ours in Jesus Christ. Yeah, sure, there's child slavery going on out there. Yeah, yeah global poverty. Yeah, I heard all about that genocide. That sucks. But that's not my concern. I mean, what can we really do about that? We're not perfect. We're just forgiven, right? We're not perfect. We're just forgiven. And besides, if you look at the back of my car, in case of rapture, I won't be here anyway. Some people have the attitude that since we don't know when Jesus will return, it doesn't matter. Others think because we don't know when he's coming back, we have to figure it out and set a date. But Jesus directs us to live differently here in expecting the unexpected. If you have your Bibles open, I love what John did last week. John emphasized the underlining of the commands here, that the commands of Jesus are the key. So I want to continue with that practice. If you have those Bibles open, and if you don't, open them up. And what I want you to see in verses 24 through 37, what's the first command we hear Jesus give in this section? They're right next to each other. You can underline it. It's be on guard. Be alert. I'm going to paraphrase that for you. Be on guard, be alert. Jesus is saying, wake up. And if you go on, you see that that's exactly what Jesus is saying because for Jesus, the opposite of staying alert and being on guard is sleeping. You go down to verse 36, he talks about don't let him find you sleeping if he comes suddenly. Be alert, be on guard, wake up. The metaphor Jesus is using here of sleeping is warning us against getting careless and lethargic about our lives in the time between now and when Christ comes back or calls us home. So on the, on the one hand, we're not to live in the here and now consumed with planning and prepping every last detail for the end of the world. We're not in all our calculations and charts to create a dream scenario for ourselves while predicting a nightmare for everyone else. But on the other hand, we're not to live in the here and now. We're not to live in the here and now disregarding or dismissing altogether Christ's return. We're not to disregard the advance notice he gives us, the cautions he's, he offers us. We're not to take those with cynicism or indifference. Because, beloved, one of the central assurances of Scripture, the foundational covenant promise of our Father, is he will bring the creation he fashioned to a good end. God our Father, a little mini gospel right here. God our Father created a good world. We human beings failed rejected and rebelled against our relationship with him, our creator, and denied our responsibility to each other. And those old ways have to go. At the precise moment when Jesus is nailed to the cross, when we see God's love poured out for the world as the heaven shook, as the gospel writers describe it, and the sun darkened, it was the beginning of the end of the world as we know it. A new way has come. We live in the time of a new way. A new way is coming. Whatever, whenever, however it happens, Jesus will return to complete once and for all what he started. Do you know there are over 300 New Testament references that speak to Jesus' second coming? For every passage that deals with Christ's first coming, eight more address his second coming. We need to wake up. We are living in the dawn of a new day. The sun is not setting. The sun is rising. We need to wake up and be alert to the changes happening all around us. Last week, John gave you this nugget. Standing with Christ means suffering with Christ. 
And that's right. Standing with Christ is, means suffering with Christ. And I love how John called us to stop whining. And I want to continue in that vein and say, yes, standing with Christ means suffering with Christ. We live in times, and you know them as well as I do, where it seems there's increasing division within the body of Christ. There's more discussion, more debate, more wrestling than, than ever before with what it means to actually follow Jesus, with what it means to be the church. And yes, there is growing opposition in the world to the way of Jesus. As John said, you can just turn on your television, your radio, go online. There are places in which suffering and death in the name of Christ is happening where Jesus is still being crucified. But if you can track with me, hear this. If standing with Christ means suffering with Christ, then that means such suffering, which we ought not to make light of nor turn a blind eye to, such suffering suggests we're standing closer to Christ than ever before. Because as Jesus says earlier in these verses, these are the birth pains. The inevitable struggle as heaven breaks into earth, as the reign of God eclipses the reign of man. In other words, beloved, yes, it's painful, but they're birth pains. Where there is suffering and death, there is also, if there's suffering and death in the name of Christ, there is also the promise of resurrection. Part of tagging on to John's admonition of what Jesus offers us here is to not whine, to not be surprised, but also we need to be also celebrating and pointing to the places where resurrection is happening. Because in this world, if there is suffering and death in the name of Jesus, there is also, there are places, there are relationships, communities, homes where Jesus is rising, where Jesus is risen indeed. I think this came to me most profoundly. Um, I was at a conference at Fuller several weeks ago, and we happened to have two scholars there at the same time. You might know one or the other or not either of them, N.T. Wright and Miroslav Volf. And they happened to get them together one night and talk about the future of the church, and very similar to what John was referring to last week, sort of the initial questions were very doom and gloom, kind of whining in a way of, oh, the church is, you know, we're in trouble. And what was fascinating for both of them that they basically said it really depends upon how you understand the church and where you think the focal point of the church is. And what they were referring to is, you know, we're, we're so fixated, because it's always been this way, that the focal point of the church is in the West, in the United States and in Europe. And these are guys both who grew up in European backgrounds. But they basically said that really what's happening is we're in the midst of another reformation of the church, and the focal point of the church has shifted to the East. China, the Middle East, Africa. And they said there's incredible suffering and persecution there, but that suffering and persecution is coming for those who are really, literally giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. And they said it's horrific what's taking place there, yet at the same time the church is not dwindling there. It's rising there. And what's exciting is that we are, have yet to even, even hear or experience the revelations, the visions that God is giving at, at this time in those places, the new theological perspectives, the new stuff— to put this in perspective, we sit here today as a byproduct of another Reformation, of a time when the church was suffering, when someone, not only Martin Luther, but Martin Luther was at the centerpiece of God doing a great work in the church. We stand as a result of that movement. We are in the midst of, and our, probably our children's children will see what is coming out of what is happening. And suddenly that shift made me realize hope. Christ is rising. Yes, there is suffering and death, and we should not turn a blind eye to it. We should not take it lightly. But at the same time, if it's suffering and death in the name of Jesus, resurrection comes with it. Jesus is rising. The kingdom is rising. Jesus, in expecting the unexpected, telling us that, says, wake up. Wake up. But he gives us another command. If those Bibles are open, he gives us another command here that's so important, he repeats it multiple times. Do you see the other command that Jesus gives that he repeats more than once? It's the very last word of our reading today. Watch. Underline that. Therefore, keep watch. What I say to you, I say to everyone, Jesus says. Watch. Jesus tells us, in other words, to pay attention. Wake up, but pay attention. Once again, Jesus doesn't tell us to pay attention to keep watch because he wants us to predict what will happen. Jesus doesn't tell us to pay attention to watch because he thinks we can fully prepare for what's going to happen. Jesus tells us to pay attention to keep watch so that we participate, so that we experience, that we learn, we grow, we are transformed by what is happening. Now, that's tough for us to hear because human by human nature, we're not good at waiting. 
Anybody good at waiting here? Human nature, we're not good at waiting. I think it's a byproduct of our frustration of not being in control. You want the ultimate manifestation of being frustrated you're not in control, be told you have to wait. I mean, let's just broadly talk about it this way. It's been, it was several hundred years before Jesus came the first time. Several hundred years. And it's been over 2,000 years, and Jesus still hasn't come back yet. And how do we fill that time? How do we deal with the waiting? We do what we always do as human beings. We wait by taking control of what we can. By planning, anticipating, ordering, striving, securing, preserving, and so on. We make patterns. We've estab- we establish routines and rhythms out of what is happening in our lives now so we don't have to deal with waiting. And many of us have grown up, we perpetuated this pattern, this rhythm, and it's, it's human nature. And, and we all, we, you may change how the, the order, but it all goes like this. Here's the rhythm and pattern that we have in waiting. You're born, you go to school, get an education, you get married, have a career, have some kids, and then you retire. That's, that's, that's the pattern, right? I mean, that, that's, that's the way we operate. We pass that on, you know? You may change it around, but that's, the, that's for most people, that's the expectation. That's what we, you know, we say, you know, well, you, got, you went to school, and now you're going to get a job? You're going to get a job, right? Please tell me at some point you're going to get married. You are going to settle down right and get married, right? I am going to have grandkids. You are going to give me grandchildren, is that right? Okay, you've been working at, you're not going to work that job forever, are you? You're not going to work there for You're going to retire at some point, right? You're going to enjoy the fruits of your labor. This is our rhythm. This is our, this is how we operate And again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with this except that the byproduct of this kind of living, of getting so attached to this rhythm and this groove, is that we can start to perceive what is impermanent as permanent. We can start to see what is temporary as being lasting. We begin to believe that this is the way life's supposed to be. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way of the world is the inevitable path that we're on. And again, many of us are, are in this struggle right now, right, with our children. We have perpetuated this with our children, with our grandchildren. We've been raised this way, and many of them are walking away from the faith, walking away from the church. These things don't matter because that doesn't fit into the pattern. And we're trying to say to them, no, but this isn't all there is. There's more to life than this. This, this isn't it. And they're like, well, that's what you taught me. This is what you said was most important. This is what you said life was all about. But no, 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 that was just the pattern. That's not it. You see, we can get so caught up in this that we start to dismiss how fragile and vulnerable this world is. Some of us are so locked into this routine and rhythm for life while we're waiting that some of us are even angry. We have a chip on our shoulder because we're convinced we're owed something. We're convinced we own something in the here and now that cannot last. I'll give you the greatest example I have of this, I often share with you what's great about being a pastor. Let me share with you one of the things I dread about being a pastor. And let me say it by way of this. When you die, before you die, sell everything you have or give it all away. Sell everything you have or give it all away. If you want to leave a legacy for your children, leave them the legacy of how generous you are. But don't leave your stuff here when you go. Because one of the most depressing oppressive things to see as a pastor is how families will split, how families will fight, how families will go to war over the stuff that gets left behind. My God, I'm not speaking to you ever again because I didn't get that china closet. I didn't get that book. I didn't get this. I'm not even talking about cash. Forget money. Just stuff. Again, that's a, a great example of how we take stuff as being permanent that's impermanent. We take stuff as lasting that's temporary. I'm telling you, if you don't give away all your stuff before you die, all you're going to do is you're going to leave your stuff for your kids to fight over, and however, the, when the blood settles, whoever gets what, then they're going to be leaving it for their kids to fight over when they go. And if ultimately that's what you're living for, and if ultimately that's what your kids are fighting about, that's what they think is most important. And yet the scriptures come again and again and say, all of that stuff is temporary. As we like to say, you can't take it with you. Beloved, we can get so caught up in our own sense of control that we can forget our time in this world is but a season. That we're waiting, we're holding the line, as John said, for something more. 
We're not holding the line to protect what we already have. We're holding the line to wait for something more. Jesus, if you have your Bibles open, puts it much more eloquently than I do. He expresses it in a very beautiful way. If you have your Bible open, look at where Jesus says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it's near, right at the door. What Jesus is saying here is whether it's the falling leaves of a tree in season, the unforeseen job change, a sudden breakup or breakdown in a relationship or the death of a loved one, there are moments when the awareness of the fragility and impermanence of our world and of our lives penetrates the cocoon of denial we've carefully woven. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. But deep down, I suspect we know as good as this life can get, we are waiting for something more. We are waiting for this world to become more than it is, for ourselves to become more than we are. We are waiting for a different way. We're waiting for the real truth. truth. We're waiting for the best life. And that's why Jesus says, pay attention. Keep watch. Pay attention to make the most of every moment the Lord gives you. Beloved, if we're casual about Jesus, if we're casual about life, and what I mean by casual, if we're casual in the sense of we're just ambling along, never putting ourselves out there too much, never making conscious decisions about why we're here, of what Jesus wants of the living we're doing, if we don't pay attention to the moments of our lives, if we're casual about it, then we will be stunted in our growth. We will find ourselves immature. We will find ourselves frustrated. We will find ourselves sickly. And if you sit here today in any one of those three words, you would characterize yourself, maybe not wanting to, as immature, frustrated, or sickly, unwell. Then maybe it has something to do with your orientation to this life and this world as we know it. For me, there is nothing more disturbing than the discrepancy between physical age and spiritual age. The two should be in sync. You know, I don't, I, I don't really care how old you are physically. Many people, that's what they get hung up on. I mean, we all get depressed. I'll confess going through a little mini midlife crisis myself in my 40s recently. We're very fixated on our physical age, but the reality is what matters is our spiritual age. Maybe you're like me. I've met people who are 80 years old who have the spiritual maturity of a 12-year-old. And I've met 25-year-olds who have the spiritual maturity of someone who's been around for a lot longer than 25 years. Our physical maturity and our spiritual maturity, our physical age and our spiritual age, are supposed to be in sync. And yet, more often than not, they are not because we're falling asleep, because we're not paying attention. We're not living into the moments that God gives us. Let me put it to you this way. There's a difference between being childish and childlike. The scriptures tell us again and again that we are to be childlike. And, you know, when you're younger, that's not hard to hear. But when you're, when you're in your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, be childlike seems kind of funky if you haven't matured in your spiritual age. Physically, you're like, childlike? I'm past that. But there's a difference between being childlike and childish. Isn't it interesting? We live at a time where if you're in your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, you can still have great abs. You can still have incredible sex drive. All the hair you want. We're reaching out to people who are pushing in on the, on the physical age and telling them they can have all these incredible things. Let me ask you, what we're pushing, is that childish or childlike? Childish. Let me put this another way. There's a difference between being <laughs> wise and elderly and just being old and tired. And how many of us sit there and we're old and tired? Whether we're told it or we accept it that we're old and tired. No, there's a difference between being old and tired and wise and elderly. And we need people of wisdom. We need people who are our elders. And we're losing them because we're telling them or they're accepting that, you know what, I, don't, I can't be wise and elderly. I'll just be old and tired. So instead of being old and tired, I'll increase my abs, my sex drive, get more hair, and then I'll have it going on. Our physical age is not what's important. It's our spiritual age. And our spiritual age grows as we pay attention to the moments the Lord gives us. 
Every moment is a moment God our Father has given us. Every moment to grow into our unique identity, to discover our specific destiny, our reason for being here. Some of us are just starting out. We have our, the world in front of us. Many of us are on the other side, as I alluded to several weeks ago, and we believe our best days are behind us. Our time is done. We miss the boat. We miss the window. Biblically, spiritually, it's not true. If you're breathing, if you have a pulse, if you are alive, every moment you still have is an opportunity that God has given you to grow still into your unique identity in Christ and your specific destiny, your reason for being here in Christ. Every moment is critical. And there's always redemption. That's part of the gospel praise Jesus. There's always redemption for lost moments. But beloved, hear this. You never have Again, the opportunity that each moment provides. There's redemption, yes, but each moment has a unique opportunity that God has given us. And that's just day-to-day life. But the scriptures also tell us when it says to pay attention that there are also moments that are special. Not just every moment, there are special moments, appointed times. And so we find ourselves at the end of our journey through the Gospel of Mark coming back to where we started Remembering how to tell time biblically. Do you remember how we learned to tell time in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark when Jesus proclaims the kingdom? Do you remember the two biblical words for time? Chronos and Kairos? Chronos, chronological, chronological, chronometer. Chronos meaning the linear measurement, measurement of time. The time that stretches before us, just one moment after another. And each one of those moments is a God-given opportunity to discover our identity and our destiny in Christ. But there's also kairos time, appointed time, more significant and pressing moments in time, special, protected, marked time. We, we, we understand this in our own day-to-day lives by making appointments. I can see you at any time, but all of a sudden I say, hey, Rachel, let's go out to lunch on Tuesday at this time at this place. Hey, it's my birthday. On this date at this time, come and celebrate with me. I'm getting married. On this date at this time, come and be with me. We make appointments. We recognize that, yes, while every moment is significant, there are special, protected, marked times. Appointments. But unlike our appointments, God doesn't make his in advance. He just shows up. It's the time when the world to come breaks into the world as it is. It's not predictable. It's a specific time of God's invitation and challenge to us. It's that moment when the saving and eternal authority and power of the Holy Spirit breaks into our experiences because God seeks to do something in us and through us. It's that moment when all of a sudden the hair is raised on the back of your neck. It's that moment when all of a sudden your heart starts racing. It's that moment when you find words coming onto your tongue that you're in your mind, you're going, where are these coming from? I can't say this out loud. I can't speak this. It's that moment when normally you just keep driving by and you feel compelled to pull over. It's that moment when you're reading the scriptures, scriptures you've read before maybe a thousand times and all of a sudden it just seems as though one specific word or verse is screaming, this is for you. Beloved, These are the moments, these kairos moments, these are the decisive moments for us. Specifically given, in the midst of the significance of every moment, specifically given to us by God to inspire, to convict, to affirm, to redirect, to guide us into our identity and destiny in Christ. And again, if this seems foreign, we understand this in our day-to-day lives. If you've been a parent or you've been a child, there are general lessons we get from our parents, right? There are things we pick up in our day-to-day, our chronological moments with them just by paying attention when we're around them, right? Things we just, by paying attention in our day-to-day, we pick up from our parents. But there are also specific times, appointed times when our parents pull us aside, when our parents give us specific instructions, a specific word for us. I'm saying this to you. This is for you. This is at this moment in your life where we need to pay attention and listen carefully. Beloved, are we keeping watch? Are we paying attention to the general and specific words, lessons, and experiences our Father is trying to share with us? How do we do that? How do we translate Jesus' call for attentiveness to expect the unexpected in our day-to-day existence? How do we identify those every moment and those kairos moments? And I'm going to say something that's been said before, but to just continue to drive it home, I feel like when I write these things down, I'm like, this has been, I've preached this before, but the answer doesn't change. 
Beloved, to keep alert to the word of God, we must be in the word of God. To keep alert to the word of God, we must be in the word of God. And that means tuning the rhythm of our lives to prayer, scriptural study and meditation, and cultivating spiritual friendships. And what do I mean by spiritual friendships? All kinds of friendships are great, but spiritual friendships are people who are in the word, in prayer with you, who will be talking about what is God saying and what is God telling you to do about it. How is God moving? How is God speaking? How is God showing up? Do you have friendships like that? Along with the commands that are here, if you have your Bibles open, notice one of the promises Jesus makes to us here. In the midst of commands, a promise. Jesus says, heaven and earth, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Do you see? It's through our immersion immersion, praying, singing, studying, reflecting upon, memorizing the word of God that we keep watch, that we pay attention to Jesus. The word, the word of God is the window through which we see Jesus. In order to keep our eyes on Jesus, we are to hear, to learn, and carry his word in our heart. We could spend the rest of this time just looking at the countless numbers of scriptures that say this over and over again. When we remember the word, when we remember the good news of new life promised to us at baptism, when we remember the forgiveness and reconciliation we celebrate through Holy Communion, our eyes are opened. We see the way, the truth, and the life that is Jesus, the joy and love we've received at Christ. That's why those sacraments are so special, not just when we experience them, but when we experience them with others. We pay attention. We keep watch by continuously looking through the window of the gospel. That's what John did last week. John took some really scary stuff in the first part of this chapter, and he had us look at it through the window of the gospel. And guess what we saw? Guess who we saw? Who we always see? Jesus. Jesus. But beloved, this doesn't happen. If you want to be alert to the word of God, you have to be in the word of God. This doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't matter how many Bibles you have laying around your house, how many devotionals you sign up for, or how much Christian radio you listen to. It doesn't even happen from a sermon on Sunday. It has to be an act of the will. It has to be a rhythm, a groove that we're committed to in our lives. We've started as a staff. I don't know if you know this. I've been surprised at people who don't. Monday through Thursday, John mentioned this also last week, at 8.30 for only a half an hour, we're here, chairs right around the foot of the cross. We dive into the word. About 15, 20 minutes, someone leads a little reflection on that, and then the last 10 minutes are prayer. I'm going to confess something to you. When we started this, I thought this was a great way to sort of rally the community to be in the Word. It's recorded. You can listen to the podcast. We've been doing it for several months now. Basically, sometimes now, maybe two or three people show up. That includes the staff. And on the podcast, 25 people maybe listen to it a day. And there was a point where I was like, well, there's another one that, that tried that and it failed. But I'm, I'm not going to stop doing it. And this may sound selfish, and maybe it is. I'm not going to stop doing it because I realize that that is just doing that for me has changed the rhythm of my life. And in the midst of just submitting that rhythm to God, I'm not going to worry about how many people show up, though anyone is invited, 8.30, Monday through Thursday, podcast available. I'm going to trust that God is the one who wakes us up. God is the one who gets our attention. I look around this room. This doesn't, what I'm talking about doesn't happen again like by accident or osmosis. And I look around this room, every person I'm looking at right now, some of you I know well, some of you I don't know at all. But I look around this room and I see accomplished people. I look around this room and I see people who have at one point in their lives put their mind to it. They've rearranged their schedules. They've found the time and they've discovered the will. And I look around this room and I've seen people who've mastered a sport, a musical instrument, a hobby, a trade. I look around this room and I see a room full of accomplished people where you found the time, you discovered the will, you put your mind to it, you rearranged your schedule, and you mastered something. A trade, an instrument, a sport, a hobby. And all of these things are worthy pursuits to be sure. But what I'm getting at is that the issue here is not lack of resources. It is lack of availability. It's an issue of emphasis. Beloved, do we pay as much attention? Are we as committed to watching and learning from Jesus about the things of God? 
We do it in other places of our lives. We can do it. Or are we content to walk by blind faith? Are we content to walk by blind faith, never hearing from God, never seeing Jesus before us, never experiencing the authority and power of the Holy Spirit? And as we've gone through Mark, I've shared that it's been a confession of many, not just in our community, but in the broader Christian community, we sort of go by blind faith. I've never heard from God. I've never seen Jesus. I've never experienced the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. Are we content to walk by blind faith or are we willing to live by a watchful faith? What's the difference between a watchful faith and blind faith? Let me, let me give you this analogy. All this talk Jesus has about watching and waiting, right? Waiting and watching. We all were kids at one point. Did you ever have a situation where your parents left you at home alone? And did you ever find yourself being left home alone by your parents to be watching and waiting for your parents? Their return is inevitable, right? Here's one scenario of waiting and watching for your parents to return. You're horsing around. You're doing what you're not supposed to be doing. You're ignoring the instructions they gave you before they left. When I come home, I want you to take care of this and have taken care of that and take care of that. Do we understand each other? You're horsing around, you're ignoring the instructions they gave for you, you're disregarding the responsibilities they gave you upon their departure. You know, you, you've been here? You're waiting and watching for your parents' inevitable return out of fear. You have that voice in your head. You know the voice, right? Just wait till your mother and father get home. And you're waiting and watching so that if you just get a brief glimpse that they're about to come in the door, you might have time to try and clean everything up and hide what you've been doing. And if you've got siblings, you all get together and get your story straight. What's been going on here? Nothing. Well, how come, oh, this, well, that, that was a great story. You're not going to believe it, but you would not, yeah, let me tell you. This is watching and waiting. Another way of seeing this is this is watching and waiting through careful religious observance. Jesus' return is inevitable. So, you know, we go to church now and again. We say the prayers. We got baptized. We have communion. We got a Bible. Maybe we've done a little Bible study. We know some songs. You know, we cover the bases. But if you look to the, 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 the majority of our lives, we're kind of horsing around. We're kind of horsing around. We're not really doing the things that Jesus said we ought to be about. But we figure we'll get some sign when he's coming and when he does, we'll have enough time to clean things up, get right with God. Every time there's a big national or international disaster, you know so many people show up at church? Get all, it might be it, man, this could be it, so let's get right with God. And then when Jesus shows up, what you been up to? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. What about this? Oh, that's a great story. <laughs> I can tell you, you're not gonna believe, no, I'm not gonna believe it because I saw everything you did. Oh, really? We've seen this posture of careful religious observance of watching and waiting in the Gospel of Mark with disastrous consequences. Whether you're a Pharisee or a rich young ruler or the part of the faceless crowd, right? But there's another way to watch and wait. Again, go back to your parents have left, their return is inevitable. You can watch and wait in anticipation for your parents to come home. Taking responsibility for our lives and for our decisions. Our beds are made, our rooms are clean. I know this isn't reality, I'm just saying it could be, okay? Our beds are made, our rooms are clean. You get along with your siblings. You care for the house. You look for ways to straighten things up. And you're not doing any of these things out of fear. You're not doing them out of obligation. You're doing them out of loving cooperation. You're watching and waiting for your parent to return out of eager anticipation, out of grateful appreciation. You want to show them, look at what we've done. Look at the house. Look at how much we, are, we were waiting for you to come back. Now, we may not see this in our day-to-day -day lives, but we've seen this posture in the Gospel of Mark of waiting and watching with anticipation, eager anticipation and grateful appreciation. And it's been transformative in the Gospel of Mark to wait eagerly, anticipating, gratefully with appreciation. It changes your life, whether you're a centurion, a Syrophoenician woman, a widow, or blind Bartimaeus. They were waiting. They were eager. They heard where Jesus was, and they went. Beloved, what are we missing? What are we failing to see, to notice in terms of what Jesus is doing around us in our lives and in our world? Because to pay attention, to keep watch to the person, the coming of Christ, is to notice where Jesus is already present and working in our lives and in the world. The centurion, the Syrophoenician woman, blind Bartimaeus, they were paying attention and they saw where Jesus was and they shouted and they went to where he was, to where he was already at work. 
Because here's the thing that we've learned through the gospel of Mark. If you take nothing else away this morning, I hope you hear this. Discipleship happens right in our backyard. Discipleship happens in the places and relationships we already have right in front of us, but we probably aren't even noticing. Did you ever, as we go through the, go back, think back to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus does his best work right under other people's noses. Jesus does his best work with the people everyone was looking down through their noses at. When's the last time you asked, where is Jesus in my life? Now, let me be careful. I'm not, not, I'm not saying when's the last time you asked, where do I want Jesus in my life? When's the last time we've asked, where is Jesus on the move in my circle of influence, in the places and relationships that have already been put around me? Have you ever thought about that? Not where you want Jesus, but what is in front of you, where Jesus is already at work and what's right in front of you. When I was um, in college and in, uh, even in seminary, uh, there was this practice. I, I specifically remember it from my ordination exams. When you had like an exam that was longer than an hour, like a two-hour or three-hour exam, did you ever have this where um, you'd have a proctor who would do you a, a, you know, a solid by writing on the board how much time was left? So, you know, two hours and 30 minutes are left in the exam, right? Well, I get kind of into things, as you can probably tell, and <laughs> when I was ta- whenever I take exams, I would lose track of time. And so on more than one occasion, but specifically my ordination exams, I had the horrific experience of it started at three hours and all of a sudden I looked up and in 30 minutes or left. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was just two, hours, two and a half hours had gone by because I just was caught up in what I was writing and what I was constructing. And that if you've been there, that experience of all of a sudden realizing <laughs> that time is almost up. Beloved, how might our vision change? What, what might we see differently? Who might we see? Where might our focus change if the rooster started crowing? If all of a sudden we looked up and saw an invisible hand like that elder part of the Bible writing, 30 minutes left. What would we finish doing? What would we finish doing? What would we wish we could start? What could we finally leave behind and let go of? What wrongs would become less important to us? What things would we want to make right? Who would we want to talk with? What words would suddenly be easier to say? How much value? How would the value we place on our accomplishments and our stuff change? Where where would we suddenly perceive precious treasure? where once we took such things, such relationships for granted. We're in a time when in movies, on TV, books, uh, we're all about the apocalypse, specifically, as you probably know, the zombie apocalypse. Now, you may not be into that kind of thing because it's gross, but what's interesting about this fixation on the apocalypse, the zombie apocalypse or any apocalypse, is it raises these kinds of questions. You see in these narratives people wrestling with how does the world change? How does our thinking change? And what those shows are getting at, this kind of thinking that it provokes, Jesus is provoking here when he gives us this analogy at the end of not knowing when the master will come. But not knowing when the master will come and yet being reminded, stay awake, keep watch. Not knowing when the master will come and stay awake, keep watch has a way of causing us to ask and answer questions that clarifies our values and sharpens our priorities. But beloved, here's the thing. This ain't no TV show or movie. This ain't no TV show or movie. If you're like me, when I was asking those questions a moment ago, real people, actual relationships, true situations came into your mind like they did mine. This isn't just one of those questions that's interesting or fun to think about, but it's not really anything serious. Jesus wants us to understand as his disciples that he's coming and that his coming is certain, the most certain thing in heaven and on earth. He wants us to be ready for his return by translating the assurance of his word about the future into our decisiveness in the here and now. In other words, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we may be waiting for Jesus to return, but we don't have to wait to follow Jesus now. 
And yet I talk to all kinds of people, and this is where, again, physical age doesn't matter. I'm talking spiritual age. I talk to people from 14 to 80. It's not, there's, no, there's no divide in terms of physical age in this. I talk to people all the time who say, you know what, I'll get serious about my faith. I'll get serious about getting into prayer. I'll get serious about getting into the word. I'll get serious about getting to know Jesus. I'll get serious about being a part of the, the, the community of faith. I'll get serious about Jesus, about following Jesus when I graduate from high school. When I graduate from college. You know, no, I'll get serious once I get married because I got to get married first. And then I, no, no, I'll get, we'll get serious once we settle down and we have kids. Once we have kids, well, you know what? We're going to get serious once they get grown up and they're out of the house because, you know, it's crazy right now. I know, you know, I, I'm going to get serious once I retire. I've been working really hard. I'm going to retire. Then I'm going to get serious. And then all of a sudden, someone writes on the board, 30 minutes left. What? There's always some excuse. There's always some excuse why today is wasted in favor of tomorrow. But beloved, as I look around and see a lot of accomplished people, I can also say this, on the other hand, if it's important to us, we'll make it a priority. If it's important to us, we pay attention. All those questions I asked a couple of moments ago, all those names, all those faces, all those relationships and situations. Beloved, you, we can engage in those moments now. Now. We can love the ones we are called to love now. We can be reconciled to those from whom we have been separated now. We can let go of the baggage of our past now. We can still embrace the possibilities we have before us now. We can be faithful to the neighbors, the coworkers, and friends and family around us now. We can finish the work that we've started now. We can still begin the work he's called us to do now. But the time is running out. God desires for us to live in a world transformed to do that, we have to stay awake and not fall asleep as we wait for the culmination of Jesus' promises about the future. We have to pay attention. We have to keep watch. And keeping watch, being attentive, means more than being saved by Jesus. You're saved by Christ. Great for you. Wow. Awesome. Being saved by Jesus is the start, but it's not the finish. Being saved by Jesus means we follow Jesus being attentive, keeping watch means sharing Jesus with others. It means leading others to Christ. So, as we end our time in the Gospel of Mark, let's walk away investing in the future. Let's invest in the future, the glorious, certain future of Christ's return. Let's invest in the future by engaging in the present opportunities that are before us. In the everyday and ordinary in the people and needs all around us. What people, what needs are around you now? Right now. You don't have to go looking for it. And may we be renewed in our trust of God's promise in the cross and resurrection of Christ that Jesus has come, that Christ is coming, that Christ will come again, that in time, God will indeed draw all of his creation, not just to an end, but to a good end, all in the name of love. Will you pray with me? Grandfather, grant, O oh Lord, that what has been said with our lips we may believe in our hearts, and that what we believe in our hearts we may practice in our lives. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And all God's people said, amen.